Praise the Lord. It is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. I'm thankful that our team that went to Ecuador and our team that went to Florida with our disaster relief ministry are back in Charleston, and we are thankful to be together. Thank you for joining with us online as well as we worship the Lord. As we turn our attention to the word of the Lord, let us uh, pray before we do so. Lord, we are so thankful uh, for the opportunity to hear truth. Uh, Lord, how we need your truth every day to be reminded of the precious promises that we have in Christ, to know that all of them have been fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to allow uh, the Holy Spirit to go before us and to uh, reveal the truth that we need and to also give us desire and power uh, to live within the boundaries of that truth. Lord, we are thankful for the freedom that we have in Christ. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to be in verses uh, 161 through 168. If you're joining with us on campus and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 573. Uh, 573. We are in uh, the second, uh, we have one more message after today in uh, Psalm 119. Lord willing, we'll finish uh, this amazing chapter uh, next Sunday. What an amazing uh, study it's been for me. I hope uh, God's Word has ministered to you as well. Uh, the series is entitled His Word, My Anchor, and, and really what we've learned throughout this particular chapter is the, the centrality of uh, God and the centrality of the Word of the Lord and how important that is and how that anchors our life. And we have seen the psalmist just express time and time again how important uh, the Lord and the Word of the Lord is to his life. And I pray that you are uh, grabbing hold of that uh, by faith as well of, of the importance of those two aspects. And what we've done every week is we have looked at this particular uh, chapter uh, in the, the original Hebrew language because it helps us understand the shape of this particular poem. It's 176 verses, 22 stanzas, each stanza uh, encompassing eight verses each, and each of those uh, stanzas are represented by a letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and then each verse in that particular stanza begins with that same Hebrew letter. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at the 21st stanza in this particular uh, chapter, and it's the, the scene or the sheen uh, stanza. And the reason why there's two uh, ways of saying that is if you look at the letter on the right, again, Hebrew language right to left, it looks like a W. Uh, you may not be able to tell too much, but in the original Hebrew, there were no vowels. And so you'll see all these dots and dashes and all that stuff. Those were kind of like those vowel sounds that help communicate uh, the language a little bit better. And so on the right side there with the sheen or uh, sheen uh, letter, the, what differentiates the two is if you look at the top of that W form is where the dot is placed. So if it's on the left or the right, depends on how you would actually say uh, that particular letter. Uh, according to uh, Jewish tradition, uh, this letter, uh, sheen or uh, sheen, uh, was represented uh, by the way that the, the priest would pray a benediction over the people of God uh, at the close of uh, that service. And uh, this tradition goes back to uh, what the Lord instructed Moses to tell Aaron, uh, his brother. Remember, Aaron was a high priest. And number six, uh, you go back, you see this amazing blessing that is spoken over the people of God. And what would happen is, uh, Jewish tradition states that the, the, the priest would go before the people of God at the end of the service, a prayer of benediction. He would stand before the people. He would have no shoes on. And he would lift his hands up like this. Just like that. And he would pray this prayer. And everybody would close their eyes as he prayed this prayer. And uh, I had to cheat a little bit. I broke my left hand in high school, and so it doesn't do that very well. So I actually taped them together. But 
one of y'all try it. See if you can do it. Y'all try it with me. Even though we're not pre... Well, I guess we are a kingdom of priests if you're a follower of Christ, right? There you go. My man's got it going on over there. Now, some of y'all may have grown up watching Star Trek, right? And that looks a little familiar, right? Mr. Spock, uh, when he went into his hometown or home planet of Vulcan, what was the greeting? What was the symbol that they gave? They gave that, right? What's interesting about the way that came about is the original uh, actor that played uh, Mr. Spock was devoutly Jewish. And he told the director that we've got to have some kind of greeting. You know, if you think about people in general, there's always some type of greeting that we have depending on culture when we see each other. And so I shake hands, high five, you know, fist pump, all those different things. And so the director said, okay, whatever you want to do. And because of his Jewish background, he remembered, he understood this prayer benediction. And so he said, okay, let's do this. And that's how it started. And in fact, you can watch a short little five-minute video on YouTube that talks about the story and how important that was and how he first learned it as a young Jewish uh, boy. And, and, And why this is important is when we get to this particular passage, this section of uh, chapter 19, or 119, the psalmist has no request, right? Instead, it's blessing, three specific blessings that are revealed to us in this particular stanza. And part of the reason why that is a blessing that the psalmist receives is because he has chosen to do what? He has chosen to make sure that the word of the Lord and the Lord himself are the central focus of his life. And this is what we see this morning. Beginning in verse 161, the psalmist says, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for the righteous rules, your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your uh, salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. And so what we're going to see in this particular passage are these three blessings that come about uh, when the word of the Lord and the Lord himself are the central focus of our life. And these blessings are true of us today. As followers of Christ, I would even say in a far greater way, right? Because the psalmist is looking forward to the cross. We have the ability to look back to the cross, right? We have a better picture. We have a completed picture of this beautiful salvation that we have in the Lord. And so what are the blessings that we receive? What are the blessings that we can live in as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, when the Lord is the central focus of our life and the word of the Lord is the central focus of our life? First, praise can be my response. Praise can be my response. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but praise is a blessing. Our ability to praise the Lord is a blessing from God himself, even when times are difficult. And again, that's where we see the psalmist in verse 161. He says, princes uh, persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. And so the psalmist here speaks of princes. These are those uh, referring to those in power, those who have authority. Uh, And because of this idea of kings that are mentioned earlier in Psalm 119 and princes now uh, mentioned again in Psalm 119, it's possible that the author of this particular uh, chapter is, is Daniel because Daniel, again, is having to go before kings. He's having to go before princes. We don't know for sure if that's him. It could be David again. But what we do know is that he's being attacked, right? He is being attacked by these individuals who are uh, in power. And the scripture makes it clear that it, again, is with what? It is without a cause, Now, this doesn't mean in any way that the psalmist was perfect. That's not what it's saying. 
But what it is saying is based on uh, the psalmist's life, the way that he lived his life in honor of the Lord, the attacks that he was receiving were not justifiable at all. He is living for the Lord, and what is at the doorstep of his life? Attacks. Attacks from the enemy, right? It reminds me of Job. When you look at Job chapter 1, verse 1, the scripture begins with this. In fact, this is probably the first writing in the Bible, right? The, 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 the oldest script that we have in the Bible is Job. And it's a, a story of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering. And we be, see this in verse 1 where the scripture says, There was a man in the land of Uds whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from what? He turned away from evil. And so the scripture says that Job was blameless. Guess what? This is God's testimony of the character of Job. That is the testimony that God says about Job, that he's blameless. Again, he's not perfect. It's not about the vertical stance, right? None of us are perfect. Only Jesus is. It's talking about that horizontal view that before the people, as the people observed Job's life, he was a man of integrity. He was a man who did not have extreme moral failure, right? He was looked up to. He had a great reputation. And the suffering that he faced in many ways was unjust. That's the backdrop of the book of Job. We see that God allows Satan to attack Job in many fronts. The great enemy, the prince of this world, is allowed to attack this one who has a love and a heart for the Lord. The one who, according to the people around them, in the testimony of God, is blameless. And one day, Job loses his children, his home, his livestock, his resources. And what we find in the book of Job, if you read it, and I encourage you to read it, 42 chapters of amazing truth about the sovereignty of God, the, the presence of God, the mercy of God, the purpose of God, the wisdom of God in the midst of suffering. What you have is an exchange between God and Satan, an exchange between Job and his friends and Job and his wife. And then on Job chapter 38, God comes on the scene in many ways and speaks directly to Job. And when Job gets to the end of verse, uh, chapter 42, that's what he sees. He sees a God who is merciful a God who is in control, a God who is gracious, a God whose uh, purpose and will will not be thwarted. It will come to pass. And a God who is personal in the midst of the suffering. And this is good news for us. This is why the book of Job is so important because it reminds us that the hero of your story, the hero of my story is not me, it's not you. It is King Jesus and greater than the suffering of Job, and greater than the suffering of the psalmist here in Psalm 119, is the one who suffered on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The apostle Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. He, speaking of Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself uh, to him who judges justly. So he's trusting himself to his heavenly father. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we you have been healed. And so again, the Apostle Peter is writing to first century uh, Christians and they're being persecuted for their faith. The enemy there is Nero. And one of the ways that Nero would, would attack those believers is he would burn villages on fire and blame who for it? He would blame Christians for it. And so Christians were facing great uh, persecution. And Peter wants to encourage them in the midst of that persecution and that suffering and says, look, look to Jesus. He, he has suffered on your behalf. 
and he meets you in your suffering today. And so when we look at Psalm uh, 119, the psalmist there, there's great similarities between what he faced and what Christians faced in the first century. Uh, Notice one of the ways that the psalmist responds in the midst of that suffering. He says in verse 163, he says, I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. That's the contrast that the psalmist has been living in, showing us time and time again that he hates falsehood, he abhors falsehood, but he loves the truth, the law of the Lord. Why such deep hatred? Remember, he was already uh, told us that he was smeared with lies in uh, verse 69 of Psalm 119. He said, the insolent, the wicked, smear with me with lies. They're mag- manufacturing lies about him. But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Again, why such hatred for falsehood and lies, especially in the midst of suffering? When you are in the middle of your suffering, Satan's weapon of choice will always be what? lies. It would always be falsehood. Satan wants you to believe the lies. Lies that say that God is not in control. God is not good. God is not just. God is not gracious. God is not merciful. God does not understand. God does not love you. Those are the lies that come to us time and time again. Satan is a liar. He is a deceiver. He's the source of all lies. Jesus himself, as he speaks to the Pharisees about Satan, says this in John 8, verse 44. He, Satan, has, is, was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies and so satan the great liar the great deceiver attacks you with what his character he's a liar satan will do everything he can in your times of suffering to convince you listen to convince you to close your bible to suppress the truth to forget about the word and the character of the Lord. And one of the things that you desperately need to cling on to and hear in the midst of your suffering is the character of God and the truth of God. Jesus, speaking to his disciples before he goes to the cross in John 14, speaks of this. He says, I, Jesus, will no longer talk much with you, talking to his disciples, for the ruler of this world is coming. He's referring to Satan He has no claim on me. Jesus says, Satan has no control over me. But I, Jesus, do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus is the one who is all-powerful. And no matter what Satan throws at him, nothing will tort his obedience to the Father's will. Jesus is faithfully victorious time and time again. And because this is true, you can trust the Lord in the midst of your suffering. This is what the psalmist does. In the midst of his affliction, the scripture says, his heart stands in awe of the word of the Lord. You see, the psalmist could have been captivated by so many things. Captivated by the things he didn't have. Captivated by the things he lost. Captivated by the things he thinks he deserves. But what is he captivated by? He's captivated by the truth of God's word. Something beautiful takes his breath away. What was it? It was the word of God and the God of the word. In the midst of the princes attacking and speaking falsehood, he looks to the greater king and the greater word. And that's where his praise goes. The scripture says in verse 164, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. We're in a season of great passion, are we not? Football passion, right? 
I had to calm my kids down a little bit last night because a particular team happened to have a good game. And I was like, listen, it's okay. Next week might be different, right? But how many of y'all saw the game where the guy, uh, Mizzou and uh, Kansas State, guy kicked a 61-yard field goal at the very end of the game to win the game? It was, it was, it was pretty cool, pretty awesome. The psalmist is reminding us that greater passion than any of those things, the thing that I celebrate most, the thing that I have the greatest passion about is the Lord. The scripture says seven times a day I praise you. Now, he's not checking a box. He doesn't have a list on the refrigerator and says, okay, seven times I got to praise you. It's, it's a picture of continuous lifestyle praise. Every moment that I have, Lord, I praise you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 97, verse 10, Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. He, the Lord, preserves, he guards, he watches over the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Verse 12, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. In other words, meditating on the truth of God's word is medicine to our soul, even in the midst of great suffering. And the result of that meditation will be a heart of praise. And that's what's happening to the psalmist. He has such a deep love for the word of the Lord. Verse 162, he says, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Great spoil. Have you ever found something valuable before? Uh, I remember when my wife and I got married. We got married in this church, and we had our reception uh, in the gym building behind us, or behind you guys, and, uh, you know, somebody made us a really good care package to go home with, a big basket full of food, and uh, we had just closed on a house. It was going to be our first day at the house together. We were getting ready to fly off uh, the next day or two uh, to Breckenridge, Colorado for our honeymoon, so we didn't have any food in the fridge. Uh, But in all the the heyday of everything, uh, we forgot the basket of food. And we get to the house in North Charleston, and we recognize, man, we ain't got nothing to eat. We're hungry. We haven't eaten anything uh, during our reception. We were so busy saying thank you to everybody that came. But that whole day, something kept poking me in, the, in my backside. And I, I couldn't figure out what it was until we finally got to the house, and I finally determined what was in my back pocket. There had been a $20 bill that was folded up that probably had been dry cleaned a hundred times. It was so sharp, like a razor blade. And I said, honey, the Lord has provided. We're ordering pizza. And I think we had pizza uh, that night. So for me, that was a great spoil, right? It was only 20 bucks, but we needed it. And for the psalmist, the psalmist talks about this valued treasure, the treasure of God's word, and he compares it to, to a great spoil. It's a hidden treasure that would be left behind, and, and it would be carried out by the army who was victorious. And this is a reminder to us as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are victorious in Christ. We have a great spoil given to us based on the treasure of God's word. When Jesus speaks of this in this great parable in Matthew 13, 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. No matter what is happening in your life, you have the treasure of Jesus Christ. You have the treasure of himself and the treasure of his word in your life. To know that Jesus reigns victorious, that he is sovereign, that he is with you in the midst of the suffering, that his mercy and grace is personal, that his wisdom is far greater than anyone ever, and his purpose is guaranteed, he is worth everything. He's worth everything. It's a treasure that we have, and our response to suffering can be praise. can be praise. You think about Job. Remember all those things that he lost, and yet Job does this in Job 20, verse 21 of chapter 1. 
Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. So he's mourning. He is hurting, right? And he fell on the ground and he worshiped on his darkest day. He's worshiping the Lord. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, on a human perspective, Job had every reason to curse God, right? But he doesn't. He chooses to respond in praise. Uh, When David uh, writes about this in Psalm 34, he says this. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, every moment that I can. His praise shall continue continually be in my mouth my soul makes its boast and the lord let the humble hear and be glad oh magnify the lord with me and let us exalt his name together isn't that an amazing call to the church that we together collectively will join together and praise and worship the lord even in the difficulties of our life you know afflictions can and will be great but praise be to god our praise can be greater When the Lord and his word is central to my life, praise can be my response. Secondly, when the Lord and his word are central in my life, peace can be my reality. Peace can be my reality. The psalmist is in a place of great tension, a great trial, and yet he says in verse 165, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. The psalmist talks about this great peace, this overflowing, this abundant peace. And the word uh, peace here is the word shalom. And so it's not talking about an outward peace, right? It's not based on political uh, warfare or what's happening in, uh, around the world. It's an inner peace, right? There's an inner peace in the midst of all that uh, chaos. And, and he doesn't have to look at the situation that he's in. Remember, he's being uh, accused and, and he's being afflicted without cause. And the psalmist has a choice. The psalmist can take that and begin to uh, scheme a plan of retaliation, right? He can figure out a way to get even, but he doesn't do that. Because of the great peace of the Lord that's in his life, that inner peace in the midst of the chaos, where he, he trusts in the Lord. David addresses this in Psalm 37. We looked at this several weeks ago, but he says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait, uh, hope for the Lord, shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in what? In abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth. And if you think about how Jesus was attacked, the gnashing of teeth, he was ridiculed in many ways. Uh, The scripture goes goes on to say in verse 13, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. Listen, we we can give up our unrighteous anger, right? That doesn't mean we don't redraw the lines and redraw our boundaries with individuals, but we don't have to retaliate, right? We can rest in the peace that God gives us. For those of us in Christ, the unfairness of life, and it can be unfair at times, will one day give way to the blessed future, right? Right? That's the hope that we have in the gospel. Until then, we hope in his word. Why? Because he's our peace. He's our strength. He's our serve foundation. Therefore, we every day have an opportunity to receive the promise of God's peace. The scripture says in Isaiah 26, verses 3 through 4, you, speaking of the Lord, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an ever lasting rock how many of us long for perfect peace this morning in the midst of whatever you're going through 
How many of us long for that kind of stability that comes as a result of God's peace in our life? When David writes about uh, the voice of the Lord in the midst of the storms of life, he says this in Psalm 29, verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people, and may the Lord bless his people with peace. So with everything we're wrestling with today, whatever struggle we're going through, whatever fear we have about tomorrow, right? the scripture says that not only will God give us the strength to endure, but he will give us the inner peace that is necessary to endure. Why? Because the word of the Lord and the Lord himself are our stability. When Solomon is writing to his son, he talks about the importance of applying the word of God, the truth of God into his life and the stability that it brings. He says in Proverbs 3, 21 through 24, he says, my son, uh, do not lose sight of these. Do not lose sight of the truth of God's word. Keep sound wisdom and discretion and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. So there's a peace there. And when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. I love sweet sleep, don't you? Great peace and stability are available to every follower of Christ because of the treasure of Christ in us. You know, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's trying to encourage them and remind them of the treasure that they have in Christ in the midst of suffering, he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us, and we are afflicted in every way. In other words, there's a lot lot of stuff going on, right? From every side, there's things crushing down on us, but not crushed. In other words, we're not overcome. We're perplexed. That means we're confused, right? We don't understand all the things that are happening in life, but we're not driven to despair. That means there's never a time that we have to lose out all hope, right? We're persecuted. We're attacked. That's where the psalmist is. That's where Paul has been. That's where we will be. We will be attacked, but we're not forsaken. We'll never be abandoned. And yes, we'll be struck down. We'll be overwhelmed but we will not be destroyed. Because of the treasure of Christ in us, we'll have strength, God's strength in us to get up time and time again. The treasure of Christ in us means that we have full access to the peace of God. The peace of God. And what is the avenue to receive that resource every day? The avenue is faithful prayer, right? Dependency on the Lord. Uh, Paul writes about this in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything. In other words, don't worry about the issues of today or the things that may or may not happen tomorrow. Yes, we plan. Yes, we prepare. Yes, we pray. But we don't worry. Why? Instead, we focus on God and his word. He is merciful and gracious, giving, just, good, powerful, wise. He sustains all things and he holds all things together. Paul goes on to say, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray because he told us to. Pray because he cares. Pray because he wants to meet us where we are. Be specific with those particular requests and trust that even when you don't know what to pray for, we know according to Romans 8, the Holy Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf in prayer. And let there be continual praise. Verse 7, what is, what is it we get in return? And the peace of God. The peace of God. So it's divine peace. Here's something that I want us to be reminded of. When we think about the peace of God, the reason why it's divine peace is because it's a fruit characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit, right? This isn't something that you and I manufacture. This isn't something that, that we get just because we try to change our thought pattern, all those different things. Listen, your mind matters, but this is a fruit of the Spirit. Divine peace is a fruit of the Spirit, which surpasses all understanding, meaning it's unexplainable peace, peace that doesn't match the circumstances. 
And it will guard, it will protect our hearts, the places where our thoughts and emotions strive from. And it will uh, guard our minds. It's where decisions are made. And how is it guarded? In Christ Jesus. So the psalmist teaches us, when the Lord and his word are central in my life, peace can be my reality. And then lastly, when the Lord and his word are central in my life, purpose can be my pleasure. Purpose can be my pleasure. There is no question that the psalmist hasn't declared uh, time and time again that his desire is to what? To remain faithful to the Lord. And that's where his deepest pleasure is found. He says in verse 166, he says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. Now, the word hope here is an amazing word. It's, it's different from the word hope before where it talks about rest. The word hope here talks about a seeking, a seeking, right? So the, the psalmist here is seeking for divine deliverance. Uh, that word seeking is, is a very similar word to what we see in Luke chapter 15, uh, the story of the prodigal son. And remember, the, the, the younger son, he goes off and uh, he rebels against the father's care and love. He goes and squanders all those things. And yet, because the father loved him so greatly, every morning, he's scanning the horizon, looking to see if his son is coming home. And that's what the psalmist is expressing here. I am seeking with great hope the deliverance that only the Lord can provide. The psalmist is trusting in the character of the Lord to, de to deliver him. The psalmist says in Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. That word Selah means to pause and to think about what you just read. How do we put, why do we put our faith and our hope and our trust in the Lord? He is our rock. He is our firm foundation. He is our salvation, our deliverer. He is our fortress, our defense. He is our refuge, our, our protection. And the psalmist says, I hope, I wait, I look forward to, I long for the deliverance that the Lord will provide. But in the meantime, what? I will faithfully follow him. That's the fruit of obedience. The psalmist says in 167, he says, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. There's this great love. So he's waiting for that deliverance, scanning for it. But yet in the midst of it, he's faithfully following the Lord. The psalmist kept the word of God, not only with his outward actions, but also with his soul. His love and obedience to the word of God was deeply rooted. Why? Because that's what he treasured the most. The psalmist was committed to the ways of the Lord because his life was radically changed by the Lord. I mean, we see this in the Apostle Paul's life. Remember, it was the Apostle Paul who... Prior to that was before he became a follower of Christ. He was attacking the church. He was persecuting the church. He was killing the church that Jesus died for, right? And, and because of the grace and mercy of the Lord, Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus, and his life was forever changed. Paul's own testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10 says this, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain, meaning it has an effect on my life. It changes the way I live. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, so he's not being boastful in himself. He's boasting in the Lord. It was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. That's what the grace of God does to us. 
The grace of God reminds us that our greatest pleasure in life is following the word of the Lord and the God of the word. It's all of grace. God met us dead in our sins and by grace through faith gave us eternal and abundant life. And it's that inward transformation that leads to outward change, not only for the Paul, but for the psalmist as well. Verse 168, he says, I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. The psalmist says that all my ways are before you. In other words, two ways you can look at that. One, God knows all my steps, right? He knows what's ahead of me. And he knows everything that I need in order to make that next step of faith in the Lord. He knows all those things. At the same time, the psalmist is also recognizing and acknowledging that all of his life is laid bare before the Lord. Listen, there are no secrets with the Lord, right? None, not one. The scripture tells us in Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than uh, any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of the soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to, uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So we must give an account to the Lord, right? That's what the word of God does. It exposes everything about us. And yet here is the psalmist. The psalmist has a deep desire to follow the Lord because he knows that's where his deepest pleasure is found. But he also knows he's not perfect, right? And yet we have a word from the Lord on this in Psalm 37. The psalmist says, the steps of man are established by the Lord. In other words, he has laid out a perfect and amazing path. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong from the Lord upholds his hand. So the psalmist delights in following that path. That's where his ultimate joy, his ultimate satisfaction, his ultimate pleasure is found. But yet the scripture reminds us that he needs divine grace when he falls, right? And the scripture says that he will not be cast headlong. That means it's a Hebrew word that means to be hurled or cast away. And this is an amazing picture of the grace that we have in the gospel. Why? Because we know we're not perfect. So though we desire to live obedient to the word of the Lord because we know that's where our ultimate pleasure is found. We know we're not going to be perfect, but in the midst of that, what is the Lord going to do? The Lord is going to restore us. He's going to rebuke us. He's going to correct us. He's going to restore us. He's going to renew us. He's going to put those broken pieces back together again. So are you on the wrong path this morning? Turn to the Lord and echo the words of David in Psalm 51, verse 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Lord, renovate, renew, and restore my life. Remove anything in my life that is hindering that obedience. Restore the joy, the satisfaction, the pleasure that I have, that blessing that I have as I faithfully follow you. You see the blessings that the psalmist communicates to us in this particular passage? When the Lord and his word are central in my life, praise can be my response, peace can be my reality, and purpose can be my pleasure. Where are you at this morning? Do you find that praise is your response today, this season? Do you find that peace is your reality and purpose is your pleasure? Listen, this, these are blessings that are given to us based on the finished work of Christ. The question is, are we living in those blessings? God and his goodness is not stingy, right? He's not withholding those blessings to us. 
Those blessings are there 24-7. The question is, are we receiving those today? What's getting in the way? Is it unconfessed, unrepentant sin? Is it that you've allowed the affliction and the suffering of life this season to be a, a time of bitterness? And all the what-ifs of life? Are you being held captive to the things of your past? Or being held captive to the unknown things of tomorrow? The psalmist is reminding us time and time again, rest and remain in the blessings that the Lord has for you. So I want to encourage you to respond, whatever that next step of faith is towards the Lord, to respond. And say, Lord, I need you.